Scotland Yard was baffled. The FBI was baffled. They sent for me, and the case was solved immediately. I confessed. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. And from the files of FBI and Scotland Yard, we bring you Episode 18, Marx Brothers Unsolved. Your host, Matthew Kaniam. Well, thank you, that masked man. Uh, and yes, welcome all to the Marx Brothers Council podcast. And this episode of the podcast is being guest produced by Owen Allen, which means that Bob, Noah and myself will all be recording our respective contributions separately. It will then be Bob's task as an editor to stitch these separate recordings together so as to make it sound as though we're having an actual conversation. Let's see how good he is at it as I pretend to introduce my co-hosts. First, the man who may have done more than anyone living to remind us that the Marx Brothers were funny before the coconuts by reviving and restaging their lost Broadway debut, I'll Say She Is, a story told with wit, aplomb and compound adjectives in his book, Gimme a Thrill. He's also a noted expert on the history of New York and author of the books 400 Years in Manhattan, Love Marches On and Anna Karenina, which he wrote entirely in Russian for a bet. If I were to say his name is Noah Diamond, that's hopefully all the information you'll need. It's Noah Diamond. Uh, Mr. Allen, should I introduce myself now and you'll put it in? Uh, I am Noah. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Next, a man of whom I have already spake, Bob Gazelle. His name sounds a bit like Gazelle, but don't let that fool you. He's not a gazelle. He's a man. He's also a research bloodhound and an expert video and sound editor, a passion he first nurtured as a boy when he discovered J. Edgar Hoover in his bathroom taping the couple next door. Please welcome a separately made recording of Bob Gassell. Hi, everyone. And uh, to set the scene, I'm sitting in my basement with a jar of raisins and a couple of cats. So let's do this. Come on. And joining us on this edition, making a welcome return visit to our shores after a long and weary trek back from episode six, is the man who is to Marxian research what Marxian research is to him, Stuart Trister. <laughs> Very well put, actually. And I've, and this is my, sec my second visit here. Um, I've now got the hang of it. I'm, this time, you couldn't fool me, I'm wearing clothes. <laughs> ah. And the reason I know I'm wearing clothes is because my wife said to me at lunch, you're not going to wear that shirt on the podcast. <laughs> so um, I am actually, but. Well, we said at the head of the show that this episode was titled Marx Brothers Unsolved. So now that we've arrived at its shoulders, I suppose a word or two of explanation is in order. In our room service show last time, I mentioned that the curious enigma that is the variant version of the film in which a different song had been written, recorded and dubbed over Swing Low Sweet Chariot was probably, for me, the most intriguing of all Marx Brothers mysteries. Well, emboldened by the lively response we received, I thought it might be fun to chew over some others, because while the rogue room service song mystery may be my favourite, it's far from the only one. So in this edition, we'll be using the Sherlock Holmes method to nominate our other most persistent and perplexing Marxian head-scratchers and doing our best to come up with a shoddy and coherent explanation for them. So let's start then by, by going back to room service, because we did get some, some feedback on that. And in fact, also, uh, the, we had an interesting suggestion live on the show from Noah, which, which I kind of 
was was quite interested in, which was, is it possible that some other use of of the song at that time might have had a bearing on it? Um, this prompted me on a on a, a research mission, which turned out to be a wild goose chase. But it might be worth just mentioning because it is quite nice. Uh, some of these things that the research throws up that never gets into into books and things because it turns out to be wrong but it's still it's still fun when you put room service swing low into into a search engine you 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 bring up constant references to a, a 1937 paramount film called swing high swing low which uh, many of you listening may may have seen because i i think it's public domain now it's a film with uh, fred mcmurray and and carol lombard and what what really intrigued me um was that it was banned in Panama. And I thought, ah, okay, this film was banned in Panama. That might make them feel a bit skittish. But um, when I looked into it, it was it was banned in Panama simply because it was partially set in Panama. Um, and I think it was actually banned sight unseen on the fairly sound assumption that... A, you couldn't <laughs> edit out all the Panama references? All the references <laughs> to Panama, yeah. On the fairly sound <laughs> assumption that, a, that a, a Hollywood version of Panama was, was bound to be offensive in some way. I think they just kind of banned it outright. <laughs> anyway, um, there was I a happy ending. I didn't know that about the banning. Yeah. I would yeah. have behaved differently. No, I once, uh, many years ago, I was introduced to the Panamanian ambassador to Israel, and I sang him an entire <laughs> chorus of Panamania. <laughs> not realizing the film had been banned there at one point. <laughs> well, it was the ban was rescinded after after an appeal, so there was a happy ending. But obviously, it was a, a cul-de-sac as as far as room service was concerned. But then there was some interesting stuff has come up on our on our Twitter thread, I believe. That's right. A Twitter user named uh, Scott A. Sandage, uh, or perhaps Sandage, S A N D A G E. Um, let me know if I've got that wrong. It's uh, a Scott, wacky Twitter name. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those crazy handles. Yeah, he advanced an interesting theory after our last episode, uh, suggesting that perhaps um, Swing Low Sweet Chariot was closely associated with uh, the great performer Paul Robeson, who had incurred the animus of the British government at the time um, because of his um, support of the Welsh miners during that crisis, and also perhaps because of his uh, closeness with uh, emerging Russian communism. Um, I thought, well, that might be interesting. But as with all other explanations for this um, doppelganger song, uh, even if Robeson was in disfavor at the time and the song was too closely associated with him to be considered without him, uh, it still seems like so much trouble to go to to make this entirely alternate Nineteenth um, century spiritual. Um, so, uh, but I but I thought uh, Mr. Sandage made some interesting points. Uh, however, even more interesting ones were subsequently made by Matthew and uh, Rodney Stewart. I can't not call you Rodney because of <laughs> it's, uh, okay. it's because of Groucho on the Jack Benny show. It was Rodney in rehearsal. <laughs> uh, anyhow, it, we have since established that. Paul Robeson, even if he did get a slap on the wrist from from some British authorities uh, over those notions, he uh, also appeared in numerous British films during this period and was plainly loved by Britain. Unfortunately, yes, it's it's like, like all these explanations. It's it's um, absolutely brilliant. Uh, the the only thing wrong with it is is uh, stubborn facts getting in the way. Um, mm. But but yes, he was actually um, very much uh, he he loved. Uh, England and, and England loved him. He he kind of came here as a 
as a kind of a, an escape from from the, the pressures of living in America and was was absolutely taken to uh, to the British heart that he made uh, five movies between 1936 and 1940 here all of which were reissued uh, during that period and um, he w- became a kind of a kind of a heroic figure here there's a very interesting chapter in a book a very good book called uh, films and British national identity by Jeffrey Richards which has got a chapter in it called uh, the black man as hero which is largely uh, given over to to Robeson's uh, work in in Britain, and it it makes a very interesting point. It says um, he, uh, he although he generally felt uh, much more uh, unmolested in in Britain, uh, and I'm quoting here: there was a celebrated incident in which he and his wife were refused entry into the Savoy Grill on account of their colour. This was taken up both in the press and in Parliament. Interestingly, it was ascribed to the influence of American race prejudice on Britain rather than seen as a byproduct of empire. So I'm afraid um, I don't think a possible Robeson connection could be the answer. No, he, was, he was loved at that time, I think. Um, before coming to the podcast, I took a look again at that clip of the two together, and the quality of the two versions is so similar. Um, I mean, one may have been done after the other, but I could, if you told me that uh, an alternative had been needed and had known to be needed from the very beginning. I would have believed it because they are they are so similar in, in quality. And the thing I was concentrating so much on this, trying to figure out what other angle there could be to it, that suddenly, totally unbidden, um, a two Ronnies parody of it came back into my head, which which concludes: Her name was Harriet, a stripper at the Hippodrome. <laughs> Swing low, sweet Harriet. <laughs> took four men to carry her home. <laughs> yeah, so that's what it did for me. Yeah, I think the only thing that, that, that uh, you know, stands against it being planned from the start is the fact that they're, they're using the same film. I think it might have been easier, as they're obviously miming to the, to the playback anyway. I would have thought they would have just shot that ending twice because some of the match-up of mouth movements to, to lyric, um, you know, it's pretty good, but it's not, it's not good enough, I don't think, if that was their idea right from the start. And also, I mean, the fact that the song is so, so painstakingly a pastiche right. wouldn't have been right. necessary if they'd been, if they'd been forewarned. But uh, I'm none the wiser. None of the explanations we've encountered allow for the complication of coming up with this alternate version. If it was just a matter of cutting out a line or a minor tweak like that, then we could say, well, maybe there was one executive at RKO who had some problem with either the Paul Robeson connection or there was another film using the song or any of these things we've discussed. But none of those things seem to justify the effort and expense that was plainly gone to. You think you've got to look at, uh, you've seen this only in the British print. You haven't checked worldwide to see what was used in every country. You know it was Sweet Chariot for the States, you know it was the Cheerio for, for England, but you may, if we, if we found out what had been used in every country and where else perhaps the Cheerio version had gone by on the basis, on the strength of archive prints in different countries. Mikhail Yulin uh, seems pretty sure that they had um, Cheerio in uh, Sweden. Aha. Uh-huh. I did come across some other uh, contemporary review of the film, European, I forgot where, and it mentions uh, Sweet Cheerio. Wouldn't it be interesting if there, we, we discover that there are even further versions of it? They, they <laughs> yes. <laughs> made songs, uh, versions of this song for every country, just to keep our podcast going. 
Yeah, and just to, to clarify for everyone, what we're hearing here in this British version is a another song, and Groucho's voice is pretty obvious, and I believe we're pretty sure we hear Chico's voice as well. Yeah. Uh, what makes yeah. this especially interesting is that this couldn't be some emergency track done later on. Uh, for whatever reason it needed to be done, it had to have been discovered and recorded while they were still shooting the film, because as soon as they were done, uh, the brothers left RKO for good and headed back to MGM. Have you already checked with Andrea to see whether Zeppo's voice is in there? <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's where uh, that's where the room service mystery leaves us. I'm afraid, no, no, none, no more wiser than we were in the last edition. But now let's uh, let's turn the clock back to the to the start of their their uh, careers. In fact, even even further than the, their first film. I've specifically asked Noah if he can dig up any uh, head scratches from from the pre-film period. Uh, and and dug them up I have. Uh, just by scratching my head, it's amazing what I can dig up. <laughs> you should uh, watch your yes. hair more often. <laughs> the early years are, of course, filled with mysteries, and, and a lot of what happened to the Marx Brothers during the first chapters of their lives and careers. Uh, this is the most mystery-shrouded part of their experience for obvious reasons. Um, however, a lot of the mysteries either are so unsolved that there is little to say about them, uh, or they have been addressed by Robert Bader. Uh, the landscape of the early years has changed so much with the release of uh, Mr. Bader's excellent Four of the Three Musketeers. So there are a lot of subjects that, you know, we would have kicked them around as enduring mysteries before. And now, even if Bader hasn't completely cracked them, uh, he has explored them absolutely as far as they seem to be explorable. Uh, one thing that I think comes up a lot in conversation among fans and that does endure as an unsolved mystery is the identity and location of the cigar store in whose window Harpo developed his gookie. Um, as the fans tend to... Uh, Tend to be aware, Harpo developed his famous gookie face, puffed out cheeks, uh, tongue corking the mouth, crossed eyes, um, by watching a cigar roller in a window somewhere in upper Manhattan. Um, and as this man rolled cigars with great intensity, he would make this face um, unintentionally. And that became uh, a Harpo staple, and it appears at least once in every Marx Brothers movie. But where was this cigar store exactly? Um, there have been numerous attempts to figure that out. In 2002, there's an article in the New York Daily News written by uh, Fergus Gwynplaine McIntyre, uh, who was a, <laughs> a Groucho Marx character. Uh, he's actually a, um, an eccentric and I think we would have to conclude unwell science fiction writer. Um, who um, committed suicide in 2010 under some fairly grisly circumstances. In this article in the Daily News, which is referenced by Bader in his book, uh, McIntyre claims that he has discovered the identity of Gookie, that Gookie's name is Amadeo Gucci, G-U-C-C-I, like the Italian uh. designer, and that he had confirmed this information um, in an interview years previously with Irving Caesar, uh, the songwriter of No No Nanette and other things, who did grow up in Yorkville and knew the Marx Brothers. Uh, Caesar was um, uh, a little bit younger than 
Gummo, a little bit older than Zeppo. Uh, and he did know the Marx Brothers when they were all children. Um, and so McIntyre claims that Caesar confirmed Amadeo Gucci as the um, identity. However, Bader tirelessly dug into all of this and couldn't find a trace of this Mr. Gucci in business directories or anything else for the period. Um, so he rules that out as a hoax rather convincingly, um, but comes up with a couple of other possible leads, none of which is satisfying enough to be the answer, um, but each of which is a possibility. Bader finds that a William Gurkha or Gurky owned a liquor store uh, at which cigars may well have been rolled. Some versions of the Gookie story call him Gurkha, G-E-H-R-K-E. The problem with this one, besides the detail of it being technically a liquor store, is that uh, William Gurkha's shop was on Lexington and 120th Street, so uh, almost a mile and a half uptown from where the Marx Brothers actually spent most of their early days on 93rd Street. Uh, Bader also finds that there is a cigar maker named Ferdinand W. Gollinge, or Galinga, perhaps, G-O-L-L-I-N-G-E, who was rolling cigars on 2nd Avenue and 92nd Street, much closer to the neighborhood. Um, and he also uncovers a George Guckert making cigars on 4th, uh, 14th Street and 6th Avenue. So if we accept that all of these anecdotes get uh, embroidered and adjusted in the retelling, it's possible that one of those three shops could be the source of this story. Um, but basically, it remains a mystery. Mm. If, if only we were a bit luckier, if there had been a second or maybe even third child who had imitated him and had originated a gookie face in, in different areas, we could triangulate the position, <laughs> looking at where Harper lived and where these other kids lived. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be difficult, really, to determine whether a, a business existed in Manhattan. Um, so the fact that there is no obvious answer to this, uh, that by itself almost establishes that the story got some kind of adjustment um, as it was told over the years. But one thing is pretty obvious, that it was, probably was something at least similar somehow to Gookie, that it... Unlike other things where Harpo, for example, just like changed a name to protect the innocent or the guilty, um, that here, this this name sticking from so early on probably lends credence to the idea that it was something which had some kind of phonetic similarity. I think that definitely makes sense. But in considering this um, just in the last week, preparing for this podcast, it occurred to me, you know, the, the sound of the word gookie, onomatopoetically, it does... <laughs> Maybe this is just because I connect it with that face, but that name sounds like that face looks. <laughs> and yes. I thought, well, it is possible that Harpo, you know, he he developed that face perhaps by observing a cigar roller. He decided Gookie was a good thing to call it, and then retrofitted the anecdote. Hmm. Incidentally, are we all? Are we all? Um, uh, I'm not advancing that as my theory, but it's possible. Are we all in the habit of seeing it uh, and, and hearing it as as Gookie? Because I've always read it in my mind as Gookie. With with the the double O stressed hard, I don't know if there's any. Is it just a matter of taste, or is there some um, some rules to follow there? Well, Bill Marks in interviews um, consistently says "gookie." I think that's. I think I'm taking my cue from him. He got it from the source, right? Yeah, <laughs> "gookie" it is. Okay, from now on, so it rhymes with "cookie," not. Uh, 
Rhymes yeah. with cookie. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a story that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I often uh, run into flack for, for trying to, to, to say, you know, these, these stories are, are kind of dead in the water. Too many threads cross here too early and, and, <laughs> and too, too few people are needing to be impressed at the time when it starts for it to be anything other than a, than an, a story with an obvious basis, in fact. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the search is on and we need to, uh, we need to find out where this chap was. Well, and similarly, this came up on the, uh, the, the Facebook group the other day about the origin of Groucho's walk, which is yeah. somewhat hard to pin down. You know, there's th- certainly inspirations and precedents, but not a specific story that you could tell and say, here's where it came from. Yeah, I have one other early days thing, which I think I mentioned to you all. Um, came up a few weeks ago. We, we we talked, I think it was in the wake of the humorist um, discussions about, you know, how early could there be footage of the Marx Brothers? If if that's as the state of affairs is, as long as nothing more of humorist has turned up, the earliest we have really is Harpo in the mid-20s and uh, another lost Zeppo vehicle also, where he at least makes a guest appearance. Um, and I think... At the time, a little while ago, I made the suggestion, who knows, these guys were big vaudeville stars. Um, I mean, they were traveling around with their own train in 1912. They were getting big um, uh, attention paid to their comings and goings very often. And I was wondering if like a newsreel camera might ever have captured them in the teens, for example, because you got other people like like Jolson didn't make a real movie until the twenties, but there's tons of of newsreel footage of him in the teens, because he was such a big star. Obviously, the Marx Brothers were not that big yet, but something popped up a few weeks ago, I think it was, on a Fred Astaire Facebook group, uh, and I'll read you the little clipping uh, because I just find what it suggests the the possibility that might open up as is is very interesting. Uh, it's not um, dated by year, at least it wasn't, but it's got to be by the look of it either 42, 1942 or 1943. The headline was, Fred Astaire's first movie was a trailer, Hollywood March 27th Associated Press. The Sky's the Limit Company, that's the film that he was making at that point in the 40s, had a screening this week of Fred Astaire's first motion picture. No, it wasn't flying down to Rio, which most people think was his first. This one was made in 1916. It is a trailer used on the Orpheum circuit and run in theaters a week ahead of the appearance of Fred and Adela Stair. Headliner of the trailer is Joe Niemeyer, who owns the reel. Niemeyer, once a star in vaudeville and musical comedy, is now a Stair's stand-in. So I just found that very interesting. I The first time I came across anything like this, and I wondered how um, frequently was something like this done, if it, wa- if it was done more frequently than not, somehow, uh, was there a company that specialized in it? Who were their clients? Were the Marx Brothers ever? Uh, I mean, I'm not saying this if the, anything exists necessarily, but it's interesting to, to ask whether uh, people who were uh, had a, a, a troupe that was doing as well as the Marx Brothers were and was popular as they were in the teens ever had this kind of thing made as advanced publicity for, for a live appearance. Have we come across any other similar trailers? I haven't or, yet. Or, yeah. So, and unlike humorous, there's no reason at all why they would ever have mentioned that again. They probably wouldn't have even remembered doing that. So it, it's a it's a live possibility, isn't it? Yeah. No more notable for them than just going into a a photographer's studio and having some some publicity snaps taken. Yeah, it's a compelling possibility, and I I was completely unaware of the existence of vaudeville trailers until you shared that piece with me. Well, it was it was new to me as well. Yeah. 
Another mystery that has always uh, nagged at me, um, uh, which is part of the larger mystery of what was it like to see these guys in vaudeville, particularly during the early vaudeville years before their act began to resemble the act that we know from the film years. Um, one of the big differences, if we had somehow the pleasure of sitting through Fun in High School or the Nightingale's Act, um, one of the things that would have been immediately different to us is Groucho's character, um, which was generally Dutch, which is to say German, uh, Dutch comics being called Dutch because uh, after Deutsch, the German word for German. Uh, in following the model of Uncle Al, Al Sheehan, uh, Groucho spent the first stretch of his vaudeville career doing this comic German character during the Nightingales period when supposedly the act was only a musical act. He was doing comedy as a butcher boy character named Hans Pumpernickel. Um, and in some very familiar pictures from the Nightingales period, uh, almost anyone who's ever looked at a Marx Brothers book knows some of those um, early pictures. Groucho is often said to look like Harpo in them because he has a vaguely Harpo-like wig and a sort of maniacal look on his face. Well, that's Groucho as Hans Pumpernickel, the, the German butcher boy. Uh, and then when the school act uh, began with fun in high school, Groucho played the same kind of character, but as an old man, school teacher, known variously as Mr. Green or Mr. Schneider or other things. So what was that like? What was it like to see Groucho playing this ethnic caricature uh, so different from the first generation American that we are used to seeing him play? So in that photograph, that famous photograph of of the four of them, where uh, Groucho is is habitually mistaken for Harpo, that's that's what he is there, is it? He's right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's Hans Pumpernickel. Um, and there are ads in in Variety um, in which uh, the character name is referenced. You know, see the Nightingales or the Six Mascots featuring Julius Marx as Hans Pumpernickel. So the character was. Uh, interesting and known enough to be considered a selling point. And we know that a signature song of Groucho's, um, perhaps even earlier than this time, but definitely by the Nightingale's period, uh, was the German folk song Schnitzelbank, which Groucho delighted ah, yes. in performing um, all his life. And so there are performances of it. There's a 1955 television version on the Swift Show Wagon, which you can find in the excellent Marx Brothers on TV collection uh, from Shout Factory. Is das nicht ein Wagen, Ist das nicht ein Kommen, Schnitzelbank is uh, sort of a, a classic, um, and Groucho's delight in performing it is obvious. Um, there's a, another famous picture of the act from Vaudeville um, when they were the six mascots. Uh, we'll put this picture on the blog. It's a 1910 photograph showing Groucho, Harpo, Gummo, Lou Levy, Minnie, and Aunt Hannah. And Groucho is in his Hans Pumpernickel character, and he is pointing with a stick to an easel, which has a schnitzelbank chart on it. Uh, so that is the song he's singing in that picture, which we know from uh, Joe Adamson's book and, and many others. 
So whenever Groucho lapses into a German accent on that Swift show wagon appearance or occasionally on You Bet Your Life, or when he sang Everybody Works But Father on some occasions in a German accent, uh, to me, it, it always is a kind of just opening the door a little bit and letting a little bit of light in hmm. uh, regarding what he was like in that elderly German character. And he did also speak German, didn't he? It was, a lot of people were surprised, particularly in later life, to find that he was he was a fairly fluent German speaker, um, not just, uh, you know, vaudeville German. But yes. He, he actually did have the language down. But isn't it interesting that all three of them started off as kind of ethnic uh, ethnic characterizations um, and, and only Chico retained it? Absolutely. In fact, you could say all four of them because Gummo was playing uh, a character often described as a Hebrew. Yeah. Um, yes. During the early days. Um, and there is something, I think it's both the family ethnic connection to Germany, uh, the Platzdeutsch dialogue, dialect that Groucho picked up from Minnie and Frenchie, and also the fact that it was so, uh, the song was so ever present in their early years that, you know, if you want to see the real man, Groucho Marx, just being delightfully happy, which is a somewhat rare occasion, um, just look at any of these clips of him singing Schnitzelbank. He's beaming. Yeah. Uh, he's just, you never see Groucho. That rare smile appears, doesn't it? Yeah, this big, broad grin. Um, our friend Robert Moulton has also pointed out that in Ben Hecht's autobiography, Child of the Century, Hecht tells an anecdote about being at a party um, where Groucho uh, took over the piano at one point and just launched uh, merrily in Hecht's word into, uh, into Schnitzelbank and his brothers joined in. And it was obviously, uh, uh, something they loved. And I can just add from my, from my new store of Abbott and Costello anecdotage. Um, interesting enough, Lou Costello, after his first failed attempt to crack Hollywood when, uh, he appeared in, in, um, Battle of the Century and, and not much else, uh, when he then went back and went into burlesque, he started out as a Dutch comic which is unimaginable, but he did. No kidding. That's really interesting. And he obviously failed because the Dutch don't know the first thing about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was such a gigantic paradigm of vaudeville and, and show business at that time. Um, and I think that's part of why it's lived on. You know, this Schnitzelbank song has more uh, recent pop culture permutations than anything like it normally would. Some people may know it from Animaniacs. It pops up in, in some of the uh, original Looney Tunes cartoons uh, as well, because um, it did have this following in vaudeville. Okay, let's skip to the movies then. Um, Coconut's not many big mysteries to plunder, except for, as Bob pointed out this week, the fact that, as we all know, the original uh, preview version was, depending on what account you read um anything from from 20 to 45 minutes longer than uh, than the one we have and unlike animal crackers which is essentially missing most of its most of the play's final act it's very very hard looking at the play script to, to work out what that material might have consisted of do we have any thoughts on that well, one thing I can think of, I mean, we've got these moments. I know there aren't that many of them. We've got these things where stills still exist, but the action is gone. Like at the auction scene, when, when he, after the auction, when Harpo uh, produces the necklace and all that, there's that still of him holding the snake. Um, where he, he, in the play script, you can read he wants to kiss the snake rather than kiss uh, Margaret Dumont, I think. 
Uh, that mm. moment is missing from the film. So we don't know how, how whether it was large sequences or lots of little things of that nature. If it could be lots of little snips. I mean, obviously there are songs missing, but I would have thought that there would have been at least some suggestion that they had been shot if they had been. My understanding was that, for instance, that you know, uh, Little Bungalow and so on were, were, were cut from the, the script rather than the movie. But I, I suppose that's a possibility. Well, the stage version um, opens up with a scene establishing some of the secondary characters. Yeah, that looks like that might have been cut from the film and editing because what we see in the movie is a musical number followed by what looks like to be a bit of an awkward cut to Groucho on a staircase. It doesn't seem like that was the intended start of that scene. Regardless, um, it looks like they uh, filmed the entire show from beginning to end and did all of the cutting and choosing in post-production. And that's different than what they did in, as what they did in Animal Crackers, where they made all those cutting decisions before they started filming. Well, we don't really have we don't really have stills that we can that that represent whole long sequences. Um, I mean, there are other things in later movies, like I don't know, uh, Groucho's courtroom scene at the beginning of At the Circus. We know the stills. We know things that are missing from the original climax of Horse Feathers and stuff like that. We don't have lots of stills where we can say, "Ah, this is missing from from Coconuts," do we? So what's the deal with the origin of the uh, Wyatt Duck scene? Uh, from what I read, it isn't in the original show, or wasn't in the show originally. Did they add it from the movie? Uh, I think it was developed in rehearsal for the show. Yes. I think that accounts for quite a few of those kinds of things. Uh, it's a bit like it's a bit like Groucho's mistake with Chandler and Animal Crackers, where, yes, it, we know it was scripted, but was it originally scripted, or did it, uh, did it emerge and was kept and developed, maybe, uh, during performance. Yeah. Why a Duck is set up in the original play script. I mean, you, you really expect it, especially if you know the film. Um, there's there's uh, references to a map of the Coconut Manor area, and you can absolutely see the Marx Brothers rehearsing this show on their feet and saying, eh, wait a minute, let's do something here. We <laughs> This is an obvious invitation to make fun of a map. Um, and I think it is one of those examples of how so often the answer to the question of how much did they ad lib is is hard to reach because so much rehearsed material originated as ad libs. And apparently the whole Wyatt Duck scene was like that. But as it was being ad libbed and developed in rehearsal and or performance, um, you know, George Kaufman might well have contributed to the writing of it on its feet. So um, it's hard to identify the origin of, of every line. I mean, I don't know what the situation is in America. Um, you probably will, um, Noah, but certainly over here, because theatre was, was quite quite strictly censored here until the late 1960s. Um, if you made any changes to the text of a play, you had to re- re- resubmit it to the Lord Chamberlain. Uh, and this is a, a huge problem that, that Spike wow. Milligan encountered in the 1960s because his plays were uh, the, the, the Bed Sitting Room and Son of Oblomov were basically improvised or largely improvised shows. And so so there was a lot of trouble with that because every time you made a change, you were meant to get that okayed. So so that would explain why, you know, a, 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 an actual play script might be updated rather than just existing in the minds of the performers. But I, I presume America didn't really have that problem. But I suppose they would still want to keep... I mean, the, I'm thinking particularly of the fact that the Animal Crackers script that we have in uh, in Kaufman & Co., um, you know, is obviously a more updated version than, you know, for instance, um, 
what's he called? Rabbi Cantor isn't isn't featured, for instance. He's the fish peddler by then, and things like that. Right. Um, it's interesting that they they kept a written record of the changes. Can you imagine if Groucho and Harpo had had to appear in some government office and Harpo had would say, like, uh, in the middle of scene five, I'm going to chase a chorus girl across the stage. And then Groucho would have to say, and I'm going to say, well, the 745 is right on time. <laughs> Let me bring up one other thing about coconuts. I, w- I want to talk about the uh, the print quality of what exists nowadays, especially on the, uh, the uh, remaster. Much of it is pristine, but there are a few reels that are murky and very soft. And uh, from what I can gather, it's been that way since the first TV uh, package was put together in in the 50s. Um, I've looked into this somewhat, and surprisingly, for a while in the 40s, it was considered a lost film. It was it was missing, or they didn't have a complete print. Um, I wish I had more details, but it's obvious that when Paramount when the Paramount films were sold to TV and uh, print needed to be found, they cobbled together something from uh, a bunch of different prints. A lot of it is good, but some of it is very murky, as you can see. Those reels that are bad, are they are they partially decomposed or are they like 16 millimeter dupes? I think they're further generations down. Yeah, yeah. And I assume that the really good quality ones probably were individual, possibly nitrate reels that had survived where the whole print itself hadn't. Mm-hmm. That's my guess from looking at it. But like animal crackers, you would you would have thought that there would be some print somewhere in the world that would have survived it, which may still quality. happen, of course. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, this film was shown a, an enormous amount. This was early, very early talky comedy musical, and and uh, it something could easily turn up, you know. Um, before we leave uh, coconuts, um, I don't know if we're about to, but before we do, one thing also, it's not a mystery. It's just a little thing that I hadn't realized until a while ago, and I don't think that many people uh, realize it. Oscar Levant, um, Harpo's later house guest, his brother was married to Mary Eaton's sister. Okay. Wait, I have one other question here about coconuts. How often do you have a big Broadway musical show where it's being translated to the screen where they decide, uh, we're basically going to redo all the music. We're going to write all new songs. I know there was a lot of of uncertainty about musicals per se around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, look at Anything Goes. A lot of, if, you go in, if you look at the trades, a lot of them say, you know, the, the, the musical boom having having exploded. You know, Paramount are now doing this, doing that. Um, there was a feeling that, that musicals weren't going to be a a going concern and a lot of musicals were filmed as as, you know without songs in them uh or certainly cut down um like animal crackers yeah rewriting (laughs) them animal crackers again though has has that new one in it doesn't it which seems to seems to go against that logic but you certainly do see that a lot in the trades that it is pretty rare for a musical to make it to film with its entire score intact and usually it's uh, severely cut I i always thought in the case of coconuts maybe it was Irving Berlin taking one more crack at trying to get a hit in this show. Um, unfortunately, that attempt was the skies will all be blue when my dreams come true, which whatever we may think of it um, is certainly not in the upper echelon of, of his work at the time. Um, but that could be it. It has become a common practice to add an original song to a musical when adapted for film so as to qualify for a best original song Oscar. Um, but I'm not sure if that, 
goes back as far as 1929. But you've got these cases a little later in the 30s, 1933, 1934, uh, things like Anything Goes and The Gay Divorce, the Divorcee, um, where almost the entire score of a successful um, stage show was substituted with totally new songs. Yeah, it's frustrating for especially for musical theater enthusiasts because these Hollywood adaptations would be so much more valuable as historic documents if they were more faithful to the stage works they're based on. Yes, and and you do still get them with with no songs as well. I mean, that's that's you know that this habit of of paying presumably a good chunk of money to get the rights to a to a Broadway show and then and then cutting out the songs. I was surprised to learn that Room Service was a musical. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, um, right up to um, right up to Emma Laduce. Uh, Emma Laduce was 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 a musical, um, uh, uh, but, but but with no songs in in the film. It is a it is a you know a strange recurring Hollywood uh, custom. What happened to all the songs in Pygmalion? <laughs> that's a Woody Allen line, isn't there? Uh, one of his his um, stand up routines. Um, he said he's he's been um, hired to take uh, to to take the um, My Fair Lady and remove all the songs and turn it back into Pygmalion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, let's move on to Animal Crackers then, and I'd like to just kick off Animal Crackers with a solved mystery, just just for uh, for punctuation. And it's interesting, an interesting one because not not everybody knows it's solved and not everybody knows it's a mystery in the first place and that is the identity of Abe Kabibble uh the the alter ego apparently supposedly or we've been led to believe of uh, of Roscoe W Chandler as many people know uh Chandler in certainly in in uh, an early incarnation of the play uh was revealed to be Rabbi Cantor which was um a dig at Otto Kahn but certainly by the time uh the play script that that is um published in Kaufman and Co uh was was written uh he's now uh revealed to be a fish peddler and in the film there's uh a confusing scene where 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 Chico says to him some place I met you before because your faces are very familiar well after all I'm one of the most well-known men in America the newspapers will keep on running my photograph you're not Abe Kabibble and because he then uh at the end of this sequence uh identifies him as ab the fishman uh the 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 view that he is in fact called abe kabibble has has taken root and you'll find it in glenn mitchell and simon luvish and alan alis and stephen camphor uh and various other places but of course it, it, it can't be true if you if you look at the scene because chico says you're not abe kabibble and Chandler says, "Oh, nonsense!" Uh, and you know, just just wafts it away. The scene then cuts to another shot uh, with Chico saying, "If you're not Abe Kabibble, who are you? Uh, Some place I met you before, and so on, and so on, and so on." And then eventually, he come from Czechoslovakia, and I know who it is. I say it be the fish peddler oh, from Ridiculous, I tell you. Now, obviously, if, if this was Abe Kabibble, it would make no sense at all because he came up with his name right at the start. He wouldn't need to, to go through all that. What's actually happening is uh, there's a joke there that we've that we've forgotten about. Uh, Abe Kabibble was a was a, a, a huge cultural figure. He was a comic um, Jewish um agent uh ab the agent uh, a strip cartoon a comic strip uh created by harry hirschfield um and uh, and a car salesman as well and um 
he looked a bit like Chandler. <laughs> he's got he's got a vaguely uh, a vaguely Lewis Sorin like uh, way with him. Uh, but he became a huge cultural figure who went on to there was there are songs. Uh, there's a song written by Joe Swirling, in fact, of of, of humorous fame uh, and comic sketches. AB dictates a letter, Mister Mendel Mint, dear sir. In close, find my check for one thousand dollars that I owe you. I am sorry to have kept you waiting. Yours truly, Abe Kibble. This is the kind of a letter I would have written you if I had the money. That's who Abe Kibble is, um, and it's it's just a a joke. Um, and as I wrote in um, the annotated Marx Brothers, um, the the only thing that that makes it confusing is the fact that the the fish peddler does turn out to be called Ab. And I think I say there's something like, you know, if only they'd called him something else, the fish peddler, this this never would have happened. But of course, I was underestimating Chico, who, whether through uh, forgetfulness or just sheer bloody mindedness, uh, I think did that himself. It because in Kaufman and Co, he is called. Ivan the fish peddler so mm. I think we have Chico to thank for these decades of confusion <laughs> I might add and in fact definitely will add that on October 1st 1924 uh, it was cartoonists night at Alsatia's at the Casino Theatre on Broadway and Harry Hirschfield who Matthew uh, names as the creator of AB the agent was one of the cartoonists who was in attendance as an honoured guest of cartoonist Will B. Johnstone, who wrote the book and lyrics for the show. And in order to celebrate all of these honored guests, who included not just Hirschfield, but Rube Goldberg and Windsor McKay, Frederick Burr Opper, uh, lots of noted uh, cartoonists of the time, uh, the Marx Brothers added a scene to I'll Say She Is that night in which the four of them stood on stage at easels, and according to the press account, anyway, faithfully recreated some of the famous cartoons created by the guys in the audience, including the Cats and Jammer Kids, Happy Hooligan, and A.B. the Agent. So if we are to believe this somewhat fanciful-sounding press account, uh, one of the four Marx brothers stood there on stage at the casino that night and drew a picture of Abe Kabibble. But which one? I does not specify, but if I had to guess, I would say it was not Zeppo. <laughs> okay, let's move on to just a, a very quick uh, and minor um, Animal Crackers uh, puzzle, which I think Bob might want to contribute to, uh, which is the, the, the curious affair of the scratched out flit can. Um, the... the, the uh, the can that Harpo uses to to neutralize his potential victims, the the brand name uh, Flit is laboriously and very crudely scratched out in one scene, but not in another. Why on earth? Yeah, well, Flit, of course, I'm not of course, but for those who don't know, is a incest incest insect insect. <laughs> Uh, insect- that's a Nirvana album <laughs> insecticide and while I'm sure the company didn't mind the incidental reference to their product earlier in the film it's a whole nother kettle of fish seen it being used to incapacitate people in the finale um, you can understand them wanting to distance themselves from that so perhaps after the film first came out they went back and scratched it out we have no idea how early this happened do we like at what point because it was obviously shot without it being scratched out. 
Yeah, but now that we have the restored version, the uncut version, it's done even then. So it's so not- it's very early. We have to say, yeah. It's interesting that it's in the dialogue. I mean, Chico specifically says, "No, that's a flitz during the fish." <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, you know, it, it's it is identified by the brand name right. in the dialogue. I think Bob's explanation is the only one, or certainly the only one I can think of that that makes sense, provided it's 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 being done competently. The only other possible explanation is is incompetence, which is to say somebody was instructed to scratch it out, and so they did it, not realizing it was also in another scene, and it just it just got by the way things sometimes do. But that, uh, other than that, the only explanation I can think of that makes sense is is Bob's um, one, which is you know very very noble of them to not not want people being killed with uh, flit cans. And everybody finds it oh so adorable that Harpo is putting everyone to sleep uh, at the end of the film. But no, he's killing them. <laughs> <laughs> he's spraying insecticide yeah. in their faces. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it wasn't satisfying shooting statues with a gun, so he had to do something. <laughs> Okay, well, the the big mystery with Animal Crackers is the doubles, the use of stand-in Marxes in the sequence that is set in uh, darkness when the storm puts out the lights. Um, I believe I'm correct in saying that the the annotated was the first book to to raise this and 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 uh, attempt to explain it but obviously uh there it had a long life before that on the internet i do uh stubbornly however cling to my belief that i was the first person to to spot it we have to go back to the early 1980s uh i'm in my bedroom watching it on a betamax video with a on a small portable television with my friend richard and i just said hey look he doesn't look like groucho there and an unspoken understanding passed between us and the pause button was pressed and that's that's when i first in, first uh, realized that there was something very strange going on i then wrote to to ray white who many of you will know you'll recognize that name he was the british um point of contact for fredonia gazette he was the person you you joined the uh, got your magazines from if you lived in Britain. Uh, so I wrote to him and uh, told him about it. And uh, he wrote back with his his characteristic, um, almost illegible, faint grey typing. Uh, I thought that was just something that uh, he reserved for me. But other other British people have since said, yeah, what was the deal with those, with those letters you joined? You've got this <laughs> fabulous... Fabulous red letterhead with the Marx's face down the side and this typing from Ray that you can virtually not read. I can only assume it was it was because the fact that Ray was and indeed still is uh, an eye specialist that he was he was giving us a free eye test at the same time. (laughs) Anyway, I wrote to Ray White and uh, uh, he phoned me. We had a long chat on the phone and uh, we talked about several things, including that. And his position at that point was, "Mm, yes, interesting, but I'm not sure. So I then wrote it up as a little little short article in which I just outlined the problem, didn't make any effort to to try and explain it, uh, and sent that via Ray to to the Fredonia Gazette, not realizing that unfortunately the issue that I had already received and read would prove to have been the last one. So so nothing more came of that, and then the internet happened, and uh, once I once I came late to the internet, I found that it had been spotted. It's probably something that wouldn't have been even noticed until the advent of home video where somebody could go back and look at it again. Exactly, yes. 
Somebody might have noticed it in the theater when they saw it, but but by the time the film ended, they probably forgot about it and moved on. Yes. Uh, most people on the internet, I, I discovered, seemed to think it was that uh, the Groucho in the scene was being played by Zeppo. Uh, and this identification, to me, seemed to hinge on a number of errors. Firstly, and most importantly, there was the precedent, the famous story, of Zeppo standing in for Groucho on stage when Groucho had appendicitis. So in some cases, this story was kind of uh, transposed mistakenly to, to the film. In other cases, I suppose it was taken taken as, as a kind of a precedent he did it then so he may as well have have done it that time too and this this story has has certainly gone far and wide um i, I blush on behalf of the british film institute my erstwhile employer but it, it is very much stated as fact in a, a british film institute um piece online that that it is zeppo but i think it's an error, as I said, partly for for that for that reason, but also because the people that tended to to be advancing the Zeppo theory tended not to realise that we're actually seeing three doubles, not one. Chico, Harpo, and Groucho are all doubled, and I think we we witnessed something of the awesome power of self-suggestion when a lot of the Zeppoites go on to say, and you can tell by Groucho's voice, there's a slightly different tone to his voice. Uh, no, you can't. No, it is Groucho's voice. They're miming. Uh, that's very clear when you see uh, the exaggerated gestures and also a, a moment where Groucho nods repeatedly, waiting for the soundtrack to catch up with the reason why he's nodding. So, so it, it is a it is a, a playback of the real soundtrack, the real guys on the soundtrack. But the main reason why it's not Zeppo is just take a look at the guy. We'll 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 put some pictures on the um, on the on the blog page. Um, but it's it's clearly not Groucho, and it's clearly not Zeppo. It's a man, whoever he is, with a very distinctive face. So my assumption when I wrote the annotated was that it was their stage doubles and that's uh that was how i proceeded and i and i attempted to name them because it didn't seem to me that it would be any kind of in joke the idea of zeppo doing it was was that it was kind of an in joke but then once you factor in harpo and chico uh no uh, not so so that's what i did um i think we got harpo and chico right i know we didn't get groucho right um but funnily enough, we've now gone back to wondering if there might be a little bit of in-jokery going on <laughs> after all. Yeah. Um, don't worry, no, no Zeppo will be harmed in the explanation that follows. But Stuart, try there. Tell us more. <laughs> okay, this is, this is where I try to justify the big bucks you're paying me for coming on again. Um, and I'll tell you, I mean, there's stuff, I don't know if you're going to know everything that I'm about to say, or at least a couple of things. Uh, but one of them that I find most interesting, I only discovered a few hours ago. I mean, less than three hours before we were scheduled to start the podcast. Um, so basically, yeah, we've got a fake Harpo and a fake Chico, and we've got a fake Groucho. Um, and we have learned in the meantime, this also connects to a storm um, that took place when they were shooting this for the first time and that knocked out all the sound equipment, etc. And, um, and I'll read you in a, in a moment the, the, the bit where Herman is um, quoted as saying, well, we'll do this another day. I think everybody who looks at it seriously can see, and of course it's not Groucho, of course it's not Zeppo. Um, now, I'll already mention what I think might be going on here, and this is what I'm going to be working on and this is the question of could it be Arthur Sheikman and why? Um, in terms of hairline and ears, 
it does kind of match what the, the little we can see. We're not supposed to be seeing too much. We do get enough profile to, to see it's not Zeppo for sure. Height is another question, as Bob pointed out in the um, preliminary discussions here. Um, this guy is at least as tall as Margaret Dumont, whereas Groucho is a bit shorter in the, in the scenes we can see them. And now there has been another interesting question that's come up that we know now uh, that Groucho's um, understudy during the Animal Crackers run on stage was Sam Goldman, who presumably was a pretty good physical match for Groucho uh, as an understudy. Um, but the pictures I've seen of him don't uh, seem to match so much what we've got on the screen there. And in any case, it seems that Goldman and the Marx Brothers uh, went their separate ways before the filming began. Um, with Sheikman, almost the opposite happens, and that's the interesting thing. Now, the reason I'm going to go over this, one, one of the most um, forceful arguments that I've heard against it being Sheikman, whether, even whether he, if he was there, available, or if it's physically enough like him, is uh, the claim that he simply was not close enough with Groucho. Their acquaintance was still too recent for that to have been a possibility. And I, I, I think um, that's something we can kind of put to rest. So there's a couple of, there's like three different chronologies to get in order here. And we'll just work our way down through them. Part of it's backwards. Uh, the really fun stuff at the end is backwards. We've got the items that appeared after the film came out, or, or as it was about to come out, the, first, the oldest one I've seen is from 24th of October, 1930, where it says the Animal Cracker storm was disrupted by a real storm. Believe it or not, a real thunderstorm spoiled one of the storm scenes while Animal Crackers, the new Marx Brothers comedy feature due at Lowe's Valencia Theatre tomorrow for a week's run, was being recorded at the Paramount New York Studios. The sequence shows Chico and Harpo Marx removing a painting from its frame during a storm, which has put out the lights at the country house where the Marx Brothers are guests. Arc lamps were being switched on and off to simulate lightning, and the property man was producing artificial thunder when a sudden spring storm burst over the studio. Cut, shouted Victor, director Victor Herman. Uh, we'll finish the storm scene when the storm's over. The explanation for this paradox is that lightning produces static in the delicate microphones to such an extent as to make voices of the actors completely inaudible. Now, now shooting um, began, as far as I can tell, the week that began on the 28th of April, 1930. There were a couple of days of rehearsal first, and then by midweek, they were, they were actually shooting. That's what it seems. I also looked at the weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the 1st of May, there was one man killed in Queens by a thunderstorm, struck by lightning. It wasn't Zeppo, was it? No, <laughs> no it wasn't Zeppo. So it could have been very early on. One of the uh, one of the still unsolved mysteries. Let's assume we accept these were not the Marx Brothers, and the soundtrack is the Marx Brothers. What was coming first? Now Matthew mentioned that one of the actors is waiting for the soundtrack to catch up, as if it had to be a pre-recorded. I don't know for for absolute certain that it has to be that way. Could it have been something that they shot silent and then when they had the Marx Brothers there, uh, did it? I don't know. There's something to, still to be to be looked at. There was also a time during the filming where. Things had to be held up for a week or so. Harpo and Chico were both in the hospital or both ill. They had some mm -hmm. physical malady. So that might have been why they might not have been available to do a physical thing because Harpo has to hang from the uh, curtains and so forth. Yes, he had an operation. And uh, so even, even when he came back, he would have been pretty tender and probably not up to that. Yeah. I get the impression that they filmed it with the Marx Brothers. And then for some reason... 
they needed to redo it. It was too dark. It was too light. It was out of focus. There was something that wasn't framed right. For some reason, they needed to redo it. And either the director said, you know, this is going to be so dark, nobody's going to notice it if it's not really Groucho, or the Marxists just weren't available and didn't show up that day. You know, we, we don't know. We can, we can make a case either way. I can, I can do better now. I can do better now. <laughs> okay, let's look at illness. Let's look at illness. There's a piece, I think this is one of the, there's, there's more than one piece. Um, the one I've um, actually got on screen in front of me here is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, 20th of July, 1930. Okay, it says, Harper and Chico Mark to finish their scenes in Animal Crackers, the new starring Paramount vehicle of the four Marx Brothers, in the face of severe physical disability, thus giving another illustration of the theatrical maxim, the show must go on. Harpo is just out of a hospital, after an operation necessitated by an enlarged gland in his neck, Chico is suffering from a painful kidney disorder. Film Daily, 23rd of June, tells us that Harpo was horizontal for a month. That's a long time to be off. Mm-hmm. Now, on vari- in Variety on July the 2nd, 1930, it says that Harpo has been okayed for work from that same day, July the 2nd. Mm-hmm. Two days' work are needed. Now here it gets fun. And we go back a little bit. Exhibitors Herald World, 21st of June, 1930. The completion of Animal Crackers has been temporarily delayed by the sudden illness of, in quotation marks, Groucho Marx. Aha. The large staff of physicians who have been in attendance on him have not yet decided whether it's appendicitis or just something he ate. (laughs) And um, the 28th of June, 1930, is again in quotation marks from the Exhibitors Herald World, quotation marks, Groucho marks, will soon be on his feet again, and they'll all be able to put the finishing touches on animal crackers. So we're looking at almost two weeks' advance by Groucho as well. Three Marx brothers knocked out at about the same time. You say, well, it could be, except Groucho and Sheikman didn't even know each other well enough, and what the hell was he you know, doing there? The thing about it is, uh, Groucho and Sheikman collaborated on a sketch for the Max Gordon Review, Three's a Crowd. And the show is first announced, how early? On the 21st of May in Variety, Max Gordon's new show. Max Gordon is either proposing a new Broadway show with music for himself or acting as caster for it. So far, reported engaged by Gordon, Libby Holman, Fred Allen, and Clifton Webb. All three principals were in the first little show hit in New York. So we've gotten that far. And we know the dates of Animal Crackers, when it began, when it finished. We have a pretty good idea about who, when the three of them were sick. And we know the names of both of the um, Chico and Harpo doubles. Variety, July the 2nd, 1930. Sheikman quits column, Chicago, July the 1st. Arthur Sheikman, AGS, conductor of the Times Gossip column, leaves for New York this week to join Metro's publicity. He will handle trailers. Sheikman has been a Chicago film critic and columnist for five years. It, It gets better. Variety, nearly a month earlier, 4th of June, 1930. Art Sheikman is vacationing the next three weeks in New York and on the tip of Cape Cod. So here is Groucho's collaborator, who he's worked on this sketch with, who he's known, well, we don't know exactly how long yet properly, but they're already close enough to have collaborated, it seems, and he happens to be there at just the time, on the spot, when Groucho and Chico and Harpo are all unavailable to to perform this scene. And you think, if all three of them are sick at the same time, what is more natural than for Victor Herman to say, hell, what can we do? We've done everything else we can without them, but this scene's in the dark. Let's do that. And, mm-hmm. and Sheikman, why would Sheikman not do this, or why would he? Let's see. Now we go back to the beginning of the year, 
Variety, 19th of February, 1930. At Ben Burney's final night in the balloon room at the Congress, Eddie Cantor, George M. Cohn, and Sophie Tucker did stunts. The Marx Brothers were upstairs, talking to Ben Hecht. So Cantor, Harry Rubin, the songster, Ed Sorin, and Art Sheikman, the gossipy columnist, took the bows as Groucho, Chico, et al. So what we now have proof of now is that before shooting began, Sheikman doubling as a Marx brother was already a kind of in-joke with them. Mm. And of course, mm. he, he, he also did his little uh, shtick in, in horse feathers, though not as a Marx brother. Um, so most of the major objections to the possibility of Sheikman, there's an answer to them. So open it up now. Did, did you guys know Groucho was sick or did I just discover that in the today? I I never knew that, and to be honest, I'm I'm almost thinking, you know, was he? Were they for the three of them to be off at the same time? One wonders, perhaps, if if they were even off doing something else, and that and that story was put out. Um, but 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 in any event, no, I I didn't know that. And um, just one sort of subsidiary point to make um, about about um, Sheikman, as you said, yes, he does have form in uh, in jokey appearances because he he is in in horse feathers for no good reason. Um, but the the, yeah. the other thing is when we as an, and we'll put some pictures on on the blog as I said. But when we say that Sheikman resembles that that man in the dark, we're we're not saying you know man A resembles man B. Sheikman is an ex- extremely distinctive character he has a very distinctive hairline he has very distinctive ears uh, and the guy yeah. in the dark has both of those things yeah the hairline is just so similar it looks like it doesn't look like someone made up to be groucho with a hairline it looks like sheikman's hairline a yeah lot. yeah <laughs> and you checked the weather forecast from when sheikman was in new york no <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> uh, by the way, for those who want to like look at the, this and investigate it on their own, I recommend you look for the old DVD version because that one is printed quite a bit lighter than the restoration where they did darken it up, maybe to hide this or to be more accurate. But the DVD version is somewhat brighter and it's easier to make out. Brighter, yes, but the resolution never gets really good when you're trying to enlarge that tiny head. Right, yeah. right. Uh, monkey business. Um, the, there has always been the, the the question of the of the two Frenchies. Uh, Frenchie supposedly uh, is is at, at the dock waving at the ship and back on the ship waving at the dock. So Frenchie is in effect waving at himself. But as anyone who's looked carefully at, at the film knows, uh, he, he isn't. He, he's only on the on the dock. He, he's not on the ship. But the the story that he is in some way, uh, somewhere also on the ship is uh, is has persisted. Uh, so uh, Stuart, again, um, can you enlighten us a little yeah. more on the possibility <laughs> of of the second Frenchie? All right. There's something I found and had, had intended to post on the council website and just on the, the council uh, Facebook page and just didn't get around to it so long until you said, hey, can you be on the Mysteries podcast? And I thought, hell, I'm saving this. So I did. I have not been um, systematically searching out every foreign language book about uh, the Marx Brothers, but a couple of months ago, I think it was, I was simply at the library and um, I went to the cinema section at that point. And there's a German book on the Marx Brothers um, staring at me. I'll tell you the one it was. It's still next to me here. <laughs> well, now, if you were systematically searching out every foreign language book on the Marx Brothers, you'd yeah. tell us, right? Yeah. <laughs> Film up the Marx Brothers, not die Marx Brothers. And sometimes Zeppo. Yeah, it basically means roll the film. Um, the author is Manfred Hopsch. I pulled it up and I thought, 
okay, I I figure content-wise, there probably isn't that much this can tell me that I don't know, but every book has a different selection of pictures, so I started just flipping, like, are there some really nice stills here I've never seen? And very, very close to the beginning, on page 11, I see a picture that makes me, uh, well, I would have stopped in my tracks if I had been walking at the time. <laughs> and it was a picture which I guess I've scanned it, and you guess you can you guys can put it up after the podcast is released, so people know what we're talking about. Nah, no, let's, let's let people imagine it. Yeah, <laughs> on the left, it's on the deck of the ship. You can see the the lifeboats hanging, um, and there's there's Harpo and Chico, and they're they're holding the chessboard between them. Harpo has his finger to his mouth in a shh gesture, and they're both looking at two other people in the scene uh, to their left the picture there, um, and one is obviously Frenchie, and he is engaged in some kind of animated conversation with somebody who, I had the same first instinct as Bob did when he saw this picture, he said, is that Zeppo? I don't think it is. It looks like an old... He's wearing a beret. He's wearing yeah. a beret. I haven't yeah. compared his clothing, but looking closely enough at the face, no, I think it isn't, because his face is only like quarter profile that we see here. Um, but the thing about it is, in the movie, we see them interrupt the chess game, or, or like take it over and take it away, and the next time we see them in the chess game, it's when they go into Joe Helton's cabin with it, unannounced, and just start playing on his bed. And we've never seen anything else there. Uh, so presumably this was a deleted scene that was filmed in between those two. Now, there is... Is, is Frenchie wearing the same outfit that he is on the dock? Probably, it, looks like it. Looks, it looks familiar, yeah. I mean, I haven't compared it uh, literally, but it looks the same to me from just uh, looking at it. Anyway, um, there is this earlier monkey business script that's floating around, the one that's been useful to us. You remember those couple of stills where Groucho at the party was doing that trick with an egg? Yes. And they filled in what that gag had been? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I went to that, and unfortunately, it says in the transcript of that script, three pages missing at the end of the captain's cabin scene with Groucho and Chico until – the beginning of the scene in the character who is later Helton, but in the, this early version is still called Joe Farina, um, at the beginning of that scene, takes up. So that is missing. So uh, presumably there must be some earlier version of the script somewhere that we can actually find out what was going on because it, it, it may – now we've seen the picture that tells us it's Frenchy. It may have been a, picture, a, a moment in the script that someone would have reading think, oh, this is not a big deal. Who cares if they cut it out because it just says two men are having a discussion or something and Chico and Harpo shush them or something like that, not realizing, of course, what one of the men is their father, Frenchy. So um, that was a, <laughs> an interesting thing for me to discover. It's also noteworthy that the now that we know Frenchie was involved in a scene here in Monkey Business that didn't make it into the film, this could be the origin of the anecdote about him being on the ship and also on the pier. Oh, sure, uh, yeah. In the memories of the brothers themselves and everyone else who made the film, uh, he indeed was on the ship. I also can't help but think, looking at this uh, photo you've unearthed, how much Frenchie here uh, is reminiscent of the older Groucho, the You Bet Your Life era Groucho. I see what you mean, yeah. His height, mm. his posture, his stance, the way his clothes fit him. Everything about him reminds you of him. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, of course, what we don't know is whether this was an actual moment in the film or kind of a posed thing for the... Uh, yeah, Or it could have been something else similar going on, but not exactly that. Yeah, and it is interesting how I... I mean, I agree with your insight about 
the question of whether this other guy is Zeppo. But it's not a hundred percent satisfying that it isn't. <laughs> it, right? Uh, do you do you see it that way too? It seems like the. I also think it'd be lovely for him to be with his son, with his kids. <laughs> lovely, yeah, yeah. If it is it's, Zeppo, it's an off-duty Zeppo, though, isn't it? <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, an off-duty Zeppo, and you know how much trouble they can be. <laughs> but I, it's strange to see a picture of somebody in profile and have any doubt about whether it's Zeppo. But something about the angle here. If it was she proper can... profile, there would be no doubt, but it isn't. It's not complete profile, is it? I just think he looks slightly extreme. I think he looks like a, you know, a Paramount caricature of Zeppo. There's just a, he's just a bit too Zeppo-ish for me. I'm not satisfied <laughs> that it is or, or isn't. But I think maybe it's Irving, Irving Brecker as Zeppo. <laughs> <laughs> Got a big schnoz, yeah, yeah. He has, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's all about how you use it. If we find a script and it tells us a moment that doesn't involve the Seppo character, then we kind of know it can't be, because Zeppo has already been introduced to us as one of the stars. Yes, players. the fact that they are carrying that chessboard strongly suggests that that it is in that it is based in some part on a scene. Perhaps what we need to do is go back and see if that beret guy appears somewhere on the ship as an extra. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't done that yet. It is absolutely worth looking to see whether this extra, like with that dress, with that dark beret on, yeah, shows up anywhere. I feel like there is some other documentation of Zeppo in a beret like that. Am I making that up? There is one of him, I think, with Chico at at an eating place, some uh, restaurant or something. Okay. So he might have just been on, you know, on the set when they took that still, perhaps. But uh, but I, I don't think it is him. I, I yeah, it might have been like, hey, hey, Dad, come on, we'll take it, we'll take a picture, pretend we're doing a scene here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I just want to ask a very very quick question about about horse feathers because this is is points up my ignorance more than anything else. But we know that the finale where the college was burnt down was filmed because there are stills of it. Um, and we've argued in the in an earlier podcast that that probably the, the the cutaways of Harpo shoveling books might have come from from that from that sequence too. So we definitely know it was filmed. It doesn't appear to have survived. What I want to know is: is there a general rule for this kind of thing when a scene is shot and cut out? Is it arbitrary whether it's saved or not? Because it seems to me that a lot of stuff that has been cut out does get saved and it turns up in documentaries and it turns up particularly, I, I, I always cite uh, that that's entertainment films, which are, which are full of musical numbers that have been cut out of films. Yeah. MGM was always big on that. I, uh, that's another reason why I don't think the Dr. Hackenbush song was uh, ever filmed because it certainly would have been included in one of those compilations. But then, you know, why, why haven't they got the, um, the, the at the circus courtroom scene? Maybe they just watched it and decided to spare us. <laughs> I think probably every studio did have its own policy, but I think what has survived has been a lot to do with like random chance that since then, and a lot of stuff was junked at later t- later dates that might have been kept originally for a while. Yeah. yeah. So in fact, actually, let's let's skip here. In fact, because the uh, the the only thing I wanted to ask about Go West was the the song there that survives all the way into the opening credits. Okay. Um, but isn't but isn't featured. I think one of the reasons is because if you've listened to the song itself, you realise the melody's still in there, and maybe they were contractually obligated to give a credit. That's playing behind that first love scene, basically after the wonderful horse shot. 
<laughs> yes, my, my favourite shot. The only shot, really, for me that makes Go West uh, a going concern. All right, well, um, let's let's <laughs> trundle back to to duck soup. Um, I think we covered the Big Bad Wolf in in sufficient detail um, in one of our earlier shows. If you're interested in that, um, I got one thing I think belongs more between horse feathers and duck soup, though. If oh, I may. yep, go on. Yep, yep, go. And it's a kind of a query. It's it's not a mystery per se, but it's something that makes me wonder. Why the hell not? Um, they seem to be such naturals for a, a classic children's story. And I find it amazing that as Paramount's possibly biggest comedians, if like, okay, W.C. Fields included then, but how come their name was never ever mentioned for the all-star Alice in Wonderland? That has never that that seems odd mm. to me that it would never even come up that was never even said they've rejected or nothing suitable has been found or that it, just zero I've never found anything about it and that strikes me as odd why on earth not and this, yes. and this was in, in preparation even before the problems of duck soup shall we say and I always thought it was odd by the by the same uh, the same token given that they're in house that shadows built I always thought it was strange that they're not in Paramount on parade. Which again, you would think would be a would be a shoe. Yeah, were they considered too adult or? But look at know? who they did get. I mean, Fields is in there, yeah. and uh, um, you got adult. You got I mean, stars for grown ups, not just child oriented. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. <laughs> You've got everything hmm. in there. It just it seems weird that nobody like Paramount. Like the heads of Paramount are making this. Who are our big stars? Who are our big like? Who are crowd pleasers? that nobody ever thought of or mentioned publicly or even got a rejection for. It just strikes me as, as um, I don't get it. I keep on looking occasionally to think, is something going to come out? You would think at least maybe one or two of them alone might have done it. If Groucho wasn't interested, I'm sure yeah. Chico wouldn't have passed yeah. it. Mm. Although you'd think Groucho would have been the most interested. He was a big admirer of Lewis mm. Carroll. And mm. uh, and isn't there a, um, a reference in Animal Crackers to the walrus and the carpenter? There is, yes, yeah, yeah. So, so speaking of um, child-related uh, subjects, well, I think uh, we've we've moving on to duck soup now. I think we've covered the big bad wolf in sufficient detail in previous shows. We'll we'll make a note on the blog of of which ones those are. If you're thinking what what big bad wolf, what is this man talking about? We'll we'll let you know on the blog. Um, another thing which we have brought up in the past, but I think we're, we're duty bound to do it again, is the presence of Leo McCary somewhere in the film. The possible presence of Leo McCary somewhere in the film as uh, as as a kind of an in jokey um, cameo, something again like Sheikman, he he did have form in doing, but we've never been able to spot him, and it's a, it's one of Bob's well, not uh, with certainty quests. anyway. Yes, yes, we've never been able to absolutely. For those just jumping in, we have found a couple of newspaper clippings indicating that Leo McCary shot a cameo during Duck Soup. Uh, we've gone through the film with a fine tooth comb, and no luck finding him, or at least nothing with any certainty. Well, there, have, there have been a few interesting candidates where I look and I think, I'm still not sure. Uh, and, of course, the fact that it might have been shot, if all these rumors about missing Zeppo footage are, are true, who knows what else, if that ever turns up, could be hiding in it. Yes, that's right. I mean, it could easily be, be lost in, a, in, a, in an edit. But uh, Yeah, I mean, nobody would have said, we can't cut this scene because it's McCary's cameo, <laughs> right? Nobody yeah. would have said that. <laughs> <laughs> My my latest candidate was uh, when Harpo's off on his horse ride as he's going mm. through the village. The uh, the peasants going out in their pajamas, running out in the street to look at him. I thought I might have seen him as one of those. 
and we've examined the kinds of cameos that McCary used to do to see what you know, you know and, and it doesn't uh yeah. I think when Groucho gets the urn stuck on his head, it's actually McCary in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my only feeling was it yeah. was probably unlikely to be in a in a chorus, uh, you know, in in a, in a sequence that was going to involve him being there a lot because a that kind of you know goes beyond a joke and b it makes it slightly difficult for him as a director. So I very much thought it was going to be a, a, a here he comes, here he goes. Uh, but we did find a report that says he's playing a peasant, which narrows it down. Um, Matthew, would you have been happy if he was the lemonade vendor? Yes. <laughs> a, a drunken lemonade vendor, yes. <laughs> and we did contact some relatives of his, and they knew nothing. Descendants, right? Yeah. They knew nothing and cared nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, then I, and then I think they changed their number, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they, they said they didn't like it so much. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the MGM films then. And before um, looking at any in any detail, let's just... D- Talk very briefly about the 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 uh, the roadshow tours, which we know were a big part of the Thalberg deal. Opera went on the road, races went on the road, and uh, many years later, uh, Night in Casablanca went on the road. We have some some photographs of day at the races, uh, but not much else, and we have nothing else um, of of the others. Why? Although we know that Go West was even filmed on sixteen millimeter. Yes, sorry, I forgot to mention Go West. Yes, that's right. But we don't, yeah. apart from a few pictures of the races show, which which makes it look like taking pictures of it is no big deal, because here's a few of those. Yeah. We have nothing else. Well, there's there's behind the scenes of opera, yeah. like there's them arriving at Salt Lake City, and there's, there's other stuff, yes. but nothing with them in costume performing. Mm, right. And the, the the really bizarre thing is, they would. The, what was the reason for these tours? They were testing the material. It must have been important for them. Even if they didn't do sixteen millimeter like Go West for every one to to document these things. Mm. So like, um, okay, we're doing this scene, it worked. Well, how was it set up on the stage? Have you got a photo, right? Yeah. Reference points, yeah, yeah. It does seem impossible and even suspicious that there is not more surviving evidence of these tours. And the one that gets me the most is night in Casablanca where they did it in an army base in front of thousands of people, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, and the technology yeah. by yeah. then is cheaper to take snapshots yeah. and stuff. Yeah, there's lots and lots of photos of Hollywood stars visiting army bases and, and performing in front of soldiers. That's not a rarity. But we do have to remember these were like Broadway previews where they wanted to maintain uh, some secrecy. So they probably said no to reporters and photographers. Yeah, I'm not thinking reporters when I say what I say. I'm thinking either of their own docu- internal documentation so they know what they were doing, so they have a record of, mm-hmm. uh, some kind of record to help them remember how things worked, mm-hmm. plus um, – snapshots or you know maybe after the show posing in costume with 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 audience members if they agreed to do that Mm -hmm. they must have been besieged by fans you know if they if they they probably not so much by the time of the go west but uh, (laughs) in the early days yeah okay (laughs) no mystery why record of the go west tour doesn't survive but what about the others (laughs) okay let's look specifically at uh, a night at the opera then and and um one of the most interesting questions for me that kind of permeates the whole business of the um, the two versions that we've discussed before um, the, the 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 version that that survives in uh, in Hungary I think and uh, the the less complete one that we're familiar with mm-hmm. is the reason seems to be references to Italy um, that what has been cut throughout have been um, references to where the fact where the fact that the film is set and for some reason sometimes somewhere someone 
didn't want us to know or at least to be constantly reminded that a great deal of the film takes place in Italy and that the characters are all Italians, not just Chico, but Harpo and Alan Jones as well. And the irony of all this is that the one thing they did have a legitimate case about uh, Chico's character was the one thing they couldn't do anything about. There's nothing you can do about it, and there's nothing you can do about their surnames. So it does seem, you know, right from the start, before you even begin to look at at, at why it was done and, 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 you know, who did it it does seem like an astonishingly futile endeavor so i think that i think that's the idea it wasn't so much that that, you know this cannot have any references to italy uh you know because that would have invalidated the whole film it's more like somebody said look can we just can we just dial down the italian a bit here can we can we just make this a bit less italian that seems to be what what has happened uh and that in itself to my mind argues against the the most the most common explanation which is that the cut steal from a wartime reissue um, uh, when uh, Italy was a, was an enemy uh, power was an Axis power um, uh, and it was it was taken out for that for that reason because nobody would want to see sympathetic Italians at a time when when Italians were the enemy um, what we did a lot of research into and and the conclusion that I still stand by is that it, it wasn't done then it was done earlier. Uh, and it was done for the opposite reason, which is um, so as not to offend Italian audiences who were very, very volatile. There was there's all sorts of reports of Hollywood films pissing off Italians around this time. They just seem to they just seem to have it, yeah. you know, a thorn in their paw about these things. Um, and uh, also, of course, because America also had a, obviously a large um, Italian American audience as well. So there are all kinds of things that are cut very early on. There's a line you can't Mussolini all of us that gets cut um there's of course the famous the three aviators who whose nationality is not named and then the the cut-in of the newspaper makes it look as though they're greek they were originally Mm. italians and 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 a pretty close parody that people would have would have got at the time of balbo the the uh, italian airman so these things are all going on very, very early, and and my feeling is that 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 it it, it was all done early. Uh, we have a Variety report from 1936 that says Italian censors have KO'd a night at the opera for native consumption as NG for the Italian temperament, no good for the Italian temperament. So um, this you know this was a problem straight away. Um, Italians were annoyed about this. They were annoyed also at, at the the, the um, the, the disrespectful use of, of, of opera, which was, was something that they, you know, they, they took very seriously as one of their great contributions to, to world culture. Um, for, was it Variety? No, it's the Milwaukee Journal uh, says that um, they lampoon that most sacred of all subjects, Italian opera. So my feeling is that this was done early and that it was done to appease Italian sensibilities. But then that opens up a whole new can of worms. How early? Because it's done very, very crudely. It's not done in a way that one would expect MGM to want that film to go out. Uh, it's done. It's done with a with a hacksaw. So, so when, when, what do we think? You wonder whether Thalberg could have been alive for that to happen to let that happen. Although, although we do have to remember that this was likely only done for one market, and due to some labeling or filing error or whatever, this is the version that survived 
That's right. And I remember we, we went to great lengths, didn't we, to try and find any contemporary review that mentions that opening song, for instance, which is the most drastic cut. It opened up like or a still or like a yeah. yeah, yeah. It it opened like a Chevalier musical, didn't it? Where where the, the lines of the song were being handed on from character to character. And it eventually ends up with the waiter that we see at the start of the film. Just it's maddening and mysterious considering the high level of polish on a night at the opera that mm. those cuts are so crude and that like when Chico's line, uh, when he's asked for the singer's name and he says the, the written line is at some Italian name, I can't pronounce it, but as cut, he says some, I can't pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just chopped, isn't it? It's just chopped. And as Stuart says, um, Thalberg certainly would, would, would not have stood for that. Surely. So, so yeah. But if I'm not mistaken, I'm not looking at the documentation. I think it was 1938, before the outbreak of war, that the Italians um, said no more Jewish comedians, said no more Marx Brothers at all. That's correct. So it's kind yes. of a narrow window between when it would be worth their while to even bother. Exactly. Yes. And between Falberg's yeah. death and the time that the Marx Brothers were persona non grata as film personalities in Italy. So yes, the, the most convenient date, which I which I narrowed it down to, uh, in terms of. Uh, where the where the where the blocks of history come in was somewhere in 1936, but that still that still butts up against the Thalberg problem. This big pet project, yeah. I can't see him. I can't see him standing for that. Yeah, I mean, even if he even if he'd been persuaded it was necessary, he might have insisted on doing retakes or something mm. else. Yeah. Other than, I, I mean, let's face it. If you're not really concerned about the some of the Chico, the, some of the, the, the what, what Noah just mentioned, some of these jump cuts, you don't get them immediately because you, you're used to watching old movies where there are jump cuts because of the film prints are old. But this, that all prints, the very first line of dialogue is truncated somehow. Mm. That is the killer Gentleman has not arrived yet. Yeah, yeah. But to be honest, how many, how many of us really noticed that until we read it later on? True, true. I think I was always aware that this was jumpy and choppy. I thought, Here, end of the credits, and suddenly... Yeah. Gentleman has not arrived yet. It always struck me, what a shitty print, you know. <laughs> I just thought, oh, old, old movie. Yeah. Some of the lines, you know, the contract scene I encountered on paper before I ever saw the film in Gene Shalit's uh, anthology, Laughing Matters. Um, he prints the scene, uh, but he prints the scene as written, I suppose. And it has the uh. some Italian name I can't pronounce it line, as well as in the same scene. Um, Groucho asks Chico, are, are you Italian? And Chico says, no, I sound that way because my mother and father are Italian. Uh, so I knew both of those lines before I ever saw the scene, and I missed them on first viewing. Mm. Uh, when Tom Rocks spoke to us um, back in episode six about his uh, his viewing of the Hungarian print, I, I don't remember. Did he... What did he say about the very beginning of the film? It didn't have the musical number. Same as ours, no, yeah. No, no, no. But yeah. but he did start recognizing the Italian references. Those jump cuts were gone. Right, in, in, right. In the jump cuts were gone in the contract scene. But uh, yeah, yeah. But the same was the start of ours. Because it's, I mean, because it suggests that that whole thing was axed crudely before anyone bothered making the other cuts. Mm. Um. And uh, I think that's it. That's it for Night of the Opera. We don't have anything else bothering us about that, do we, Bob? I wish I wish I had something here. Did you see the comment on the in, on the council's Facebook page? What's this? 
what you you wrote you wrote a, like a mystery like you yeah. like we're about to start recording yeah. and somebody wrote I don't know if I can take an hour and a half of of, of pondering about the manicurist. <laughs> <laughs> well, then turn it off now. <laughs> I wish I had something new to say about our search for the manicurist. Other than I have nothing new to say, uh, I'm, I'm getting no help from our Hollywood friends. You know who you are. So I guess we're on our own, folks. I, I stick with my um, what I think about a year and a half ago. I wrote this on a comment somewhere. I wrote, "I'm open to ditching the Betty Sanford theory, but only for something that is more likely." That's that's how I feel. And I know Robert Moulton contacted um, family and all that, but uh, you know, Stuart, I was really open to having her at least as a possibility, something. But after looking at more pictures and stories about her, she's she's just too too old and too short. I, I just can't go along. Sorry. Do we know if Arthur Sheikman was in Hollywood at the time? <laughs> the one thing I will say is that I'm not as much curious about the identity of the uh, manicurist as the story as to why we don't know her name. Why she's not identified, yeah. yeah. Did she request it? Did she do something? You know, They I, took her out of the yeah. credits because it was an Italian name. <laughs> <laughs> but the annoying thing is we found so many other reports, didn't we, of... Um, of real manicurists, real studio manicurists being screen tested. It seems to be like one of those stories that they keep plumping for. What makes this even more tragic for this lady is that if you look up the Marx Brothers online or in a book or whatever, you're likely going to come across a photo of the stateroom scene mm. with her front and center. It's probably the single most definitive image of their career. And she's the most prominent person in it other than the Marxes. So it's just a shame that her name still escapes us. Hmm. Now, I said 2019 was going to be the year of the manicurist, uh, but we might have to uh, file an extension. We're running out of time. Won't somebody uh, please help us? Can't you see Bob is suffering? <laughs> okay. Um, on a night at the opera, Harpo speaks. He has this uh, couple of pages, at least, description of his tour to promote the movie, which we find no trace of anywhere. And it sounds like it's totally uh, yes. invented. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a thing that's... Um, yeah, I keep on wanting to find one clipping that will match something that Harpo says in that uh, in that couple of pages, and I find nothing. Um, we know that there was maybe timing to do with his relationship with Susan or something that he yeah. wanted because it was very linked at that point. It was like he 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 took the tour to get away from the pressure of having to make a commitment and stuff like that, make a decision. Uh, fine, but and and he tells some specific stories, which very I guess must have stories. taken place at different times. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But I mean, are we all agreed that nobody's ever found any evidence that that was anything that that tour ever took place? Nothing I've at all. I've never seen anything. Yeah, yeah. and and, <laughs> and obviously, you would think that if what if anything was going to get reported, it would be a a, a promotional tour. That's what they're for. Uh, it's it's it? for publicity. You know, yeah. keep it quiet. <laughs> so it is. That is a very uh, strange, which needs a lot of. I think you know would would. Um, reward a lot of future investigation that's uh though the explanation presumably has only to do with him covering up his you know his his personal affairs in a way that makes makes sense somehow well maybe personal affair is not the phrase you want to use well no i mean his 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 nervousness about susan or something yeah right um i, I want to just briefly talk about the the line in um day, day at the races uh the famous line where where uh Groucho says i told you guys to stay down in that room with those pigeons um, obviously, it refers to something that's no longer there. When the horse comes in, there's a there's a pigeon on it. So there's something something that's got lost in the uh, in the various um, 
stages by which that film came about. That's that's perhaps not particularly um, remarkable, except that it seems to me that we have so much documentation about that film, uh, so many different drafts going all the way back to when it had, you know was had almost nothing to do with it as it eventually uh, appeared. So it just seems like there's just nothing there's nothing anywhere to 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 account for these pigeons they intrigue me yeah b- before we we um started recording i i went and i just listened to it again like take a fresh look at the thing and one thing did strike me it's the way that groucho says the line i told you guys to stay down in that room with those pigeons and he puts a huge emphasis really on the word pigeons and it strikes me that what is going on? I mean, after all, the horse does end up coming in with the pigeons. The horse is the one who's the fugitive from justice here. The horse is the one who can't be mentioned. It seems to me like he's saying pigeons because he cannot say horse under those circumstances. And presumably, yeah, Matthew must have it right. I mean, there must be some kind of deleted uh, sequence or part of a scene, at least, maybe a continuation of the one that fades out before, where pigeons kind of by the way happen to be in there and they're used as the reference so they're not really strongly relevant it's just that he's he's using that so in a sense he's he's saying that in the same way that he would say x day on the horse hay yeah exactly right there's always a there's always the slight possibility that it might just be a non sequitur like it it might be brilliantly absurd that there's a reference to pigeons that doesn't seem apropos of anything uh on the other hand it could be yeah it might be the wreckage of a creative process that went off the rails. Yeah. I don't remember the walrus uh, scene cut out of uh, animal crackers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But if an actual walrus kind of galumphed across the screen, it would, it would add to our impression that something was intended. <laughs> this article was discovered by Bob Gassell. It's from the Dayton Herald, Dayton, Ohio, June 29th, 1937. It was written by none other than Alan Jones. Uh, or someone wrote it for him, perhaps. Uh, and he's uh, relaying some of his memories of working with the brothers on Day at the Races. He says, uh, I've seen those three take three days to work out a sequence that looks like three minutes in the script. For instance, Groucho had an idea that he should open a window and some pigeons would fly out. But the pigeons just sat there and refused to play. So the back of the drawer had to be removed so that a man could stand behind and give the pigeons a shoe, S-H-O-O. Mm-hmm. That moved the window too far away from the wall, so a hole had to be cut in the wall through which the man could shoe his shoe. Then Chico thought it would be still funnier if some rabbits should pop out of another prop, and Harpo wanted some pigs in still a third prop. Well, if watching that sort of thing go on for months at a time doesn't drive you as insane as the Marxes are, you've gone through your baptism of fire all right. Well, first, let me point out that I can't imagine Zeppo writing that article, so. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Kenny Baker. (laughs) Can I ask, did Alan Jones have a habit of any sort? Was he... (laughs) Was he a, was he a bit of a was he a secret drinker? I mean, Harpo wanted a pig. Well, do you remember what Frank told us in our uh, day at the races episode? Alan Jones had kept uh, had a VHS, and he was working up until the end of his life. And it was just his scenes from the Marx Brothers movies. Everything else was cut out. It was just the Alan Jones scenes. And I worked with an actress in in, uh, in Groucho Life and Review. I remember she was in San Bernardino at the California Theater. And she told me that story of sitting there and watching Alan Jones scenes from A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. 
that's that's i think if i go to hell and it's it's likely <laughs> i'll be there with alan watching those clips <laughs> so yeah apparently he was a character yeah. but i guess this all does point towards a deleted scene is you mentioned well, part of a scene it could yeah. be the you know, the thing we don't know is what room the horse came from was mm. he still in groucho's um closet bedroom closet Mm-hmm. Or was he moved to another place where there were pigeons? I mean, that scene does fade out. There could have been a chunk missing somewhere. Mm-hmm. What what as what Stuart was saying though does does um, I think point very convincingly to the, to the the fact of the pigeons being in that bit was of no particular significance. I, li- I like that. Right. Other than that, they were in the same place as the horse. Yeah, yeah, but he could he could just as easily have said with those cushions or you know with that with that windowsill or anything with else that straw. That Yes. <laughs> yeah. With, with with the remains of my mattress. Yeah. It kind of does make it an absurd idea. I mean, Jones introduces the idea of pigeons by saying Groucho had an idea that he should open a window. I mean, it seems to be a drawer, actually, not a window, but he he should open a window or a drawer, and some pigeons would fly out. It doesn't sound like a particularly inspired comic notion, unless maybe it was based in something else in the script that we're just not being told here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I'm wondering about out and in, since we don't know whether the place that the horse was immediately before the examination scene was outdoors or indoors. Do they fly out? Do they fly in, really? I'm not quite sure. how. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little hard to visualize exactly from the way the, the, the piece is written that uh, Noah just read out. Or maybe is it somehow tied into... Um, Groucho being a veterinarian um, and having all these animals in his charge. We don't, I guess, see that happening in the sanitarium. But in his first scene in Florida, doesn't he have a puppy in his sleeve and, and things like that? Yeah. Uh, have we ever cased that like scene to make sure there are no pigeons lurking in the background that could have come with him? Maybe they flew over from the park bench scene in A Night at the Opera. Hmm. I think the the biggest mystery with a day at the race is a uh, um is 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 the famous uh, Doctor Hackenbush song, which uh, as we all know was was at, at some point intended for inclusion, um uh, and isn't included. Um, what we don't know is is why what what happened to it, and and um what we don't know for certain is is how far it got before it was taken out. Was it was it filmed or not um i i have a, mm. a a very strong conviction there but it but it's not uh it's not documented um bob you've got some mm. thoughts on this i think okay well it's impossible to prove something didn't happen there seems to be very strong evidence that the number was never shot um first let's talk about the song's origin it was written by bert kalmeyer and harry ruby for a very early draft of the film that they did and while that script was soon abandoned, the song was held on to probably because Groucho liked it, I'm, I'm assuming. When the road tour was done, Groucho sang the song. But when it came time to actually shoot the film, the song was dropped uh, for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. But MGM and Groucho still liked the song and used it as a promotional tool on the radio show they did when the film came out. Some sources claim, some people claim that the song was in the film but cut out, but as far as evidence goes, it was never really part of the film because look at the finale. Uh, they're marching on the track and they're reprising songs from earlier in the film and Dr. Hackenbush is not reprised. Uh, actually, another song that was cut, physically cut from the film, is reprised there. So, you know, um, but Dr. Hackenbush isn't. Yes, exactly. Groucho does do a little song reprise and it's not his. 
But the biggest evidence we have is that there's absolutely no place where the song would fit. Uh, Groucho's entrance is low-key, and there's no real context for a big production number there. So if the song had ever been intended to be there, the scene would have been staged and conceived totally differently. So by now, you're probably saying, okay, we get it. The number was never shot. But why? Uh, well, the answer is pretty simple. Believe it or not, it just doesn't fit Groucho's character here. A big part of the plot of A Day at the Races is Groucho's attempts to hide his background that is unsuitability for the job. But in the song, he's basically bragging about it. I've won a claim for curing ills, both in the north and south. You'll find my name is like my pills in everybody's mouth. I've never lost a case. He's never lost a case. I've lost a lot of patients, but I've never lost a case. My diagnosis never fails. I know just what to do. Whenever anybody ails, I'm sympathetic too. My heart within me melts. His heart within him melts. No matter what I treat him for, they die from something else. While this was totally in line with the Paramount Groucho, this was not the rational character that MGM demanded. And although things change a little bit in At the Circus, in the Thalberg films, uh, Groucho doesn't sing, you know? The the songs in opera and races are almost diegetic. The opera singers sing in Night at the Opera, and it's always a context of, I think we'll sing a song now. Mm. And so it seems that Although Arthur Marx, I think, suggests not very convincingly that the song was cut because Groucho didn't care to work on it, yeah. uh, which makes very little sense. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like the answer, uh, as you suggest, Bob, is sort of hiding in plain sight that yeah. this song it just belongs in a different movie. Yeah. Uh, if it had been included, I think we'd all be happy about it. I don't think we would say, wait a minute, this is not consistent with the rest of his character as yeah. presented in this film. Yeah. Uh, but... It truly isn't. Kalmar and Ruby seem to have taken the assignment as let's pastiche hooray for Captain Spaulding and make it about a doctor instead of an explorer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point you just made, Noah, about the diegetic use of, of um, music, that you, in opera and races, you don't, you only have the diegetic. And that could even... That could wait, even wait, can we hold on a second while I, uh, while I look up that word, please? <laughs> Diegetic, uh, music that uh, is is real in the context of the the piece. Like you only hear a song when it's somebody singing a song in a nightclub. Uh, okay, got it. Like, I think that the Man in the Moon number, the way it, what it would have been, I mean, and recording does exist of that. Alan Jones's soundtrack recording exists of that. But I believe that was just simply sung to Judy, right? Uh, to, to cheer her up or something? I don't know, but it, but it would have been non-diegetic. Is what I'm saying. And maybe that's another reason. Maybe they took a decision and said, we're axing this for that reason, the same reason as Hackenbush. Got it. It it kind of straddles the line because when in opera, when, when, uh, Maureen, um, not Maureen, when Kitty Carlisle and Alan Jones sing alone, it is like, oh, please sing us a song. And yet the music does come out of nowhere. So it's it's sort of presented like a musical, and it's sort of dietetic. Borderline case, if you like. But it's certainly got an excuse, a rationale in the plot. When Groucho sings Ho for the Open Highway, that's diegetic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there are two um, points to be made about about how it it doesn't fit. I mean, obviously, uh, in terms of the plot, um, Groucho is pretending to be something he isn't and in the song he's he's being you know he's uh sort of boldly stating 
the opposite um and one could still sort of get around it by saying you know once that song starts um the the background kind of fades um strange interlude style and he's kind of singing to us you know you could kind mm-hmm. of make that case but at the same time you also have to remember that that he his character genuinely doesn't get any pleasure out of his subterfuge in this film one of the one of the most sort of unfortunate things is that he's such a cringing sheepish uh, character throughout and he feels guilty he feels this tremendous guilt that he's taken this job and is now letting poor uh, poor judy down so it, you know it is totally uh, out of character so i think yes that and then when you add to that uh, the fact that there are no stills and when you add to that the fact that at the end groucho does a song reprise and it's not that song it's a different one um to me that's about as convincing as you can get without without proof pretty much yeah okay one thing that i wanted to to this is this is an exercise in self-restraint here because um what i don't want to do now is is pile into uh groucho in at the circus but I do want your oh. opinions on on just quite what's going on with 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 new Groucho, uh, the you know the 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 new Coke of uh, of of Marx Brothers in um, in at the circus because it, it, you know yes he's wearing an unpleasant wig but there's there's much more to it than that he just looks different doesn't he his face looks different it's a different shape he looks like his makeup is slightly different or perhaps the lighting is slightly different he looks like a different man he's doing a different voice his body language is different we do know that uh you know this was supposedly under direction from edward bazell but even so there's 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 more to it than that he he's just he's strange is it possible that he was just he knew that the the quality and the material was not there and he was just overcompensating trying to sell it possibly but 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 he seems so happy to, in the big store doesn't he to go to going back to being himself it, it he it, there is an element of duress i think in in those two movies um but yeah but also just his face i mean he just he seems his face seems longer thinner i don't know if he'd gone on a crash diet maybe or the specific and and rather unpleasant bag of tricks he employs in these two films are uh, never seen elsewhere. I mean, it's not the only time we've seen him grappling with substandard material, but it's the, mm. these two films are the only time he deals with it that way. Makes you wonder what Bazell was asking him to do, and and it tells you for the first one if if Bazell managed to institute that he could only have gotten away with it with Leroy's uh, agreement. But it underlines, I think, just how how still Groucho is in, in those early films. If you look at him, for instance, in the wooing scenes with Margaret Dumont and compare that with the at the circus wooing scene, he's very, very still and measured. Uh, and here he's all over the place. He's buzzing. His arms are moving. His legs are moving. He's standing up. He's sitting down. Um, it, it is a deliberate, very different way of performing. And isn't it strange and maybe coincidental, but certainly strange that in a way, this Groucho from At the Circus and Go West, in a way, this is the popular misconception of Groucho. It's as though these two films are more widely seen than the others because people remember him and often impersonate him as though he was like this, as though he was more hyperactive, more manic, um, more shrill and sort of this Ooh. mugging, um, uh, excessively ingratiating um, 
attempt at, at being a sort of crowd-pleasing entertainer, which he was not. It's almost as if Julius wasn't Groucho and was trying to do an imitation of him. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a Groucho impersonator. I wonder whether there's a kind of a, apart from like whatever Bazell was bringing to it, a kind of a, a zeitgeist thing where somebody said, hey, this is the swing era now. We've got to pep you up, something yeah. like that. Or the amphetamine era, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's going on in culture in general? Um, I mean, it's obvious from the script that he's been rewritten as a kind of a Bob Hope figure, isn't it? Um, Brecker, I think, I think I'm running really saying yeah. Brecker wrote for Bob Hope, but it, but certainly Bob Hope is is in the air at this point, and he's mm-hmm. written he's written like a radio comic for sure. Um, that that that's certainly obvious from the material. But um, in terms of performance, I don't know that he's particularly tapping into anything there, is he, other than uh, rank insanity? Not that I can identify specifically. I mean, we can theorize, oh, he's he's feeling um, like he's, you know, not a spring chicken at this point. He's trying to be youthful and bring uh, extra energy to it and show that he's, um, you know, got every bit the the manic energy of younger comics who are coming up now. But I that would be a surprise because, you know, you look at him in the in the stills. And he looks like he wants to die. So, so the idea of him wanting to put <laughs> right. in that extra effort. Yeah, that's just as hard to imagine as the mm. idea that he was submitting to a director's idea of what his character should be like. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense that Bazell had something to do with it because it's the two Bazell films that have this problem. But can you imagine Groucho taking a director's advice and radically changing his screen persona? Mm. Well, I what I think is what one of the most obvious... Um, external visual things the hair now what is the hair if you got more hair if it's not receding obviously then you're younger maybe there was this push you got to be younger you got to appeal to a younger market you can't you're getting old you got to fight it or something like that yeah maybe and, which goes with maybe like um projecting more manic energy somehow that that was all part of a, a parcel of some kind yeah it's strange that the performance immediately preceding it in room service is so understated um more understated than usual for Groucho. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if somehow the room service experience somehow informed these choices. It uh, mm. doesn't seem like a straight line, but maybe a jagged one. Part of the, you know, part of the problem with room service maybe, you know, is you boys, uh, you boys have lost energy, you know, perhaps, I don't know. But who, who, well, I suppose yeah. Mervyn Leroy said that, I suppose, but, but then, you know, to go back and, and go West and, and, and do it again, you know, it just seems strange, you know, so then not do it in the big store, you know. Well, we solved that one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> We're getting good at this, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, wait, there was one thing. <laughs> this is this is still actually at the circus relates to the personality thing. Um, Noah may, may remember me saying this when he made his big splash with uh, I'll Say She Is and did so well with it, that I made a comment at the time to the effect of somehow that of the two contemporary Groucho impersonators, like people really playing him well, um, and I, 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 I haven't seen Les Mars, and I've seen his, I've seen his Chico and his Harpo live, and I've seen Frank's uh, Groucho live, but I haven't seen Les's uh, Groucho live, so I don't really can't, I can't really have an opinion. But among the better ones, I mean, I think the two best are you and Frank. And I made a comment at the time about how you seemed somehow because of the 
um, your delivery to represent more to be closer to the Paramount Groucho, whereas Frank was more the MGM, the good MGM Groucho, let's say, not the bad one, which you found interesting, I think, at the time. But how the hell does something like that – because I think you have the, 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 the sh- smarter, sharper kind of tone – than Frank. Frank has a Frank is able to be more low key and still get away with it somehow. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think partly this comes from the fact that um, I, I my Groucho is best known and most associated with. I'll say she is where it's a very deliberate effort to present a, a somewhat more embryonic version of that character, um, and just the nature of the aura around I'll say she is, is has to do with it being early. Um, and then also I think f- because Frank's Groucho is most often seen in his evening with Groucho in which he presents a kind of, uh, timeless Groucho pastiche, you know, he, he does material from the thirties, um, through, I, I guess as late as the sixties, even in that show. So it is more of a, um, a summary of the the Groucho career, certainly from Hollywood onward. Your template is the uh, shadows built Groucho, right? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's interesting as well as flattering. Thank you. No, what I mean was to use the the best people doing Groucho today as a kind of a tool to investigate this change in the Groucho of thirty nine forty. Yeah. Oh, and here's another angle on that. The Groucho solo show is such a challenging proposition. Um, numerous people over the years have done Groucho solo shows, Frank most extensively. Um, but the Groucho of the 20s and 30s never did that. That character alone on stage entertaining, entertaining an audience at length is a phenomenon with no historic model. And in order to do that for an hour or two successfully, I think you probably have to, as Frank clearly has, you you have to make the creative choice to make Groucho a slightly more ingratiating, crowd-pleasing, you know, dervish of a figure, um, just in order to to make that character work all alone on stage. Yeah. Well, no, um, no program about, about uh, Mark's, Mark's mysteries, um, would be complete without the mystery of uh, Harpo's fluorescent radioactive hair in uh, A Night in Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on there? Well, first of all, we should dispel the, uh, the, I wouldn't say rumor, but the report that it's his real hair fluffed up because while some of it may be in the back and, and, and his sides, the fact is that he was quite bald by the time the film was shot, and whatever on top and in front has to be fake in one way or another. I mean, the most that could be real is a little bit at the sides and back, right? <laughs> Which he would then have had to have permed. Well, I did come across this feature article from uh, the shooting of the film where uh, a reporter who was on set details uh, Harpo applying some sort of cotton candy-like fluff material to a scalp with uh, some glue. Yeah. So while that basically explains what we're seeing here, it doesn't really explain why. What seems to make the most common sense is that there were reports later in the MGM days that Harpo complained about his scalp being uh, irritated when he wore a wig all day on the hot set. So this must have been seen as a solution for what it's worth. So found a, a, some kind of solution that was not a real wig that made him sweat like a, and, and uh, totally blocked off all mm. air from his scalp. 
Right. It certainly couldn't be because they want it to be more real because there's nothing else in the film about his characterization or the looks of the other brothers where they tried to do a, a more real look. Right. It's very bizarre when you compare it to the other wigs that we're used to. But once you're in the film, you kind of you get accustomed to it. it it's Harper still. Doesn't bother me. I don't, you know, there's uh, the wig, the wig he wears in, uh, I forget which one, maybe room service. There's, service, there's yeah. some wigs that he wore earlier on that bother me more than his, than his hair here in this one. It seems so unlikely, though, that even if it, the issue was that the regular wig was irritating his scalp, I was it more comfortable to glue, glue stuff slush. to your head and, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and have your hair dyed? They went to so much effort to, um, I guess if it was about making him comfortable, uh, what was that original wig made of? Did it have sandpaper on the inside? <laughs> Too bad they didn't have CGI back then. They could have just done that. Yeah, just give him a wig that way. And you have to wonder what he looked like when he got home at night and took it off. But also bear, <laughs> bear in mind here, Night in Casablanca compared to, I think, all other films that they were in are the ones where they had kind of the most control. It was their production more mm. than any other so the yeah. fact that he opted for it in this one, when I mean Paramount, MGM, RKO, these have always been studios. They've always had, um, I don't know, probably makeup costume people who were attending to these things, and he didn't have as free a hand. And he maybe maybe he just said, "If I'm going to do it, and it's our picture this time more than any other, really." Um, I want to. I want to be something. a platinum blonde. <laughs> <laughs> that had just been his dream from from day one. As we talked about earlier, it's a shame we don't have any photos from the Night in Casablanca tour uh, roadshow because we'd be curious to see whether he's wearing something similar on the tour. I, I would assume not. I assume he did a wig when he just had to do a, a one show a night yeah. or two shows a night. Yeah. It is so strange. It doesn't, but like you, Bob, I'm not that bothered by it when I watch the movie, but it seems so strange to me that at this point in 1946, making a movie that is really a very earnest effort to recapture the old magic and a, a often successful one that they would fiddle with the, the basic look of one of the brothers that heavily. It's, it's, uh, it's a little mind boggling. Well, there is one other possible explanation. And that goes back to the end of filming of uh, the big store when they uh, <laughs> built a big bonfire and, and supposedly yeah. burnt all their costumes and yeah. wigs. And uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, Harpo was still in the very early 60s, still appearing in public with a wig and costume. And that version never reappeared after mm. 1946. Not, not right. least in, in Love Happy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Where it was, if, if anything, even more his picture than, than mm. any other. Right. So I guess we'll never know why he glued on fluff. <laughs> well, time has beaten us and we're, we're temporarily fresh out of mysteries, but um, there's bound to be plenty more. Obviously, we will, um, when we go through the deep dives on the other films, we'll, uh, we'll uh, look into that. And if, if there are any, um, anyone listening has got any particular uh, puzzle that, that we haven't mentioned, by all means, let us know and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give it our best shot. Um, but that's it for now. Uh, thanks once again to Stuart Trister for joining us. Yes, thanks, Stu. Thank thanks. you. Thank you. Pleasure. And thanks to you for listening, and please continue to do so. Uh, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, time for our closing song. And as always, I don't need to tell you what it is, because it's this. 
Well, you need to tell me what it is because I'm the one who's going to edit it in. <laughs> Mrs. Uh, Wandra Klumpner, is that right? Klumpner? That's right. I'll start with you. Uh, where Where is your hometown, Wanda? My hometown is in Sommerfeld, Niederlaus. It's about five hours from Berlin, Germany. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like in Sommerfeld, in the Niederlaus, in the Schnitzelbank, huh? Eh? lang. Kutschenlang, uh, Kutschenlang, you know that? Oh, yeah. Yes, that's the same. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's the same. 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 Yes, that's the